Okay, I think we can start by uh, reading the New Testament, the new the scripture for today, oh, for this evening. Okay, so it's taken from Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 to chapter 12, verse 14. Okay, so you have your Bible, you can take them out right now, or you can refer to the screen. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of, Lord of, the heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to you, little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read, have you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of the Lord, of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You will not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into the, their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it up? Lift it up? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out a hand. So he stretched out, she stretched it out. And it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how much they might kill Jesus. This is the word of God. Let me pray for God's help to understand his word. 
Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that even as we've heard the Bible read, uh, we've heard your voice, uh, the voice of the living God. And as we dwell on your words together now, please will you continue to speak to our hearts and by your spirit transform our thinking, our emotions, and our lives as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the most tired and sleep-deprived uh, that you have ever for me, it was on a weekend away, a bit like uh, this one, uh, only it was uh, our secondary school Christian fellowship. Uh, it was our annual weekend away, and we were all 15 years old, uh, along with some of our teachers. And uh, we went to school as normal on Friday, and that evening we drove up to our hotel uh, near the seaside. At about 1 a.m., uh, the teachers gave up trying to make us go to sleep. Uh, we stayed up all night, trash-talking, fueled by sweets and Red Bull. By Saturday morning, uh, we had been awake for 24 hours, but it got worse. That day, we spent the whole day listening to talks, playing games, going to the beach. And on Saturday night, you guessed it, we tried to stay awake all night again. More Red Bull, more sweets, I managed to stay awake till 5 a.m. before I finally thought it would be sensible to get maybe two hours sleep. A couple of my friends, they didn't sleep at all. They'd been awake for 48 hours. Well, can you imagine us at church on Sunday morning? Nearly impossible, and it wasn't a very good sermon. All through, we were eyes heavy, heads sort of falling into the uh, pew in front of us. And as we got home that afternoon, I think all of us went straight to bed, and I think I slept for 15 hours in a row. I think it was the most tired and sleep-deprived I've ever been, and I say that as a parent of uh, two girls, one of whom is nine months uh, old. I desperately needed rest. Now, of course, rest doesn't always mean sleep. Uh, some people rest by curling up with a book. Uh, others need to play sport. Others have a long holiday. Uh, some people like to do mindless chores around the house. Some people go to McRitchie at 5.30 a.m. I don't get that. I wonder how you rest when you are feeling tired and weary. At the end of this talk, we will come back finally to the question of physical rest and what the Bible might say about that. But before we think about physical rest, there's a much, much bigger question we now know we need to answer. How can spiritually restless people, people who've turned their backs in a relationship with God, how can we find rest again? We've seen that Old Testament religion, the Old Covenant, it wasn't the solution. But God wasn't giving up so easily. Now, we will know that he sent Jesus to deal with the problem. That won't be a shock to any of us. But again, let's try and see this fresh perspective on a familiar story. We're going to see what, how Jesus offers the rest that we so desperately need. And we're going to start with the uh, first heading, the gospel of fulfillment. One of the central ideas in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fulfills the Old Testament. 
So 12 times in his gospel, Matthew explicitly points out how Jesus fulfills predictions made by the Old Testament prophets. And that's not just Matthew's idea, his interpretation. Jesus himself teaches that he came to fulfill the Old Testament. And that included all the Old Testament law. So flick over to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Flick over to Matthew 5 and look at what Jesus says about the law in verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Notice that Jesus does not say, I have come to uphold the law, or I have come to enforce the law. He uses the language of fulfill, verse 17. Accomplish, verse 18. You see, like the prophets, the law pointed forward to something much greater than itself. And Jesus claims that something is him and life in his kingdom. The law points to Jesus. And so in Matthew 5, Jesus puts his teaching above the Pharisees and their interpretation of the law. But Jesus is even prepared to put himself above Moses, who gave the law in the first place. Jesus adds to what Moses said and even changed some of what Moses taught. So Matthew 5 is very clear. A relationship with God is no longer going to center on Moses and the Old Testament law. It's going to center on Jesus and his teaching. And that brings Jesus into almost never-ending conflict with the religious leaders of his day. In the 400 years uh, before Jesus, since the days of Nehemiah, uh, they'd taken his hair pulling very seriously. And so they had tried to invent lots of supplementary rules to help them keep the Old Testament law. And that was especially true when it came to Sabbath keeping. And the Jews had identified 39 categories of work, all of which were forbidden on the Sabbath. And each of those categories contained subcategories. They thought of their rules like a wall around the fourth commandment to make sure that people didn't even come close to profaning the Sabbath. But Jesus, he didn't seem to care about their rules. Instead, he consistently calls them out for their hypocrisy, their legalism. That's the immediate uh, context of the passage we just read. Jesus is condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocritical rejection of him and for failing to see that God's kingdom was being established through him. That's uh, chapter 11, verse 16 to 24. But then we get to verse 25, the start of our reading. Uh, Jesus starts by acknowledging that the rejection of the Jewish leaders is part of God's sovereign plan. But to those who accept him, Jesus makes an amazing offer. 
He offers rest for your souls. And hopefully, having seen all the Old Testament background, we see why that is such an amazing thing to say. So look again at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, on one level, uh, this is a criticism of the Pharisees' excessive rules that had left the people weary and burdened. But it's more than that. In the wider context of Matthew, Jesus is talking about the burden of keeping the Old Testament law. Like we saw in the Q&A, the law itself is good. Its intended purpose is wonderful. But as we've seen in the Old Testament, law-keeping, even something as simple as observing the Sabbath, was impossible because of the people's sinful hearts. And so rest, a fruitful relationship with God, it seemed impossible. And that's why Jesus' words are so amazing. He is saying there is another way to achieve rest. Obviously, he isn't talking about physical rest, verse 29, because he calls it rest for your souls. This is the true rest we've been thinking about, spiritual rest, a restored relationship with God. And again, having seen some of the Old Testament background, uh, we will know that that is an absolutely massive, massive claim. Just imagine me saying, give me 30 minutes. 30 minutes with Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Zelensky. And I will sort out all the conflict in Ukraine. I just need 30 minutes. That would be a ridiculous claim for me to make. But that is the magnitude of the claim that Jesus is making. By offering restless people rest, he's making the most outlandish claim of all. He is saying he can fix everything that is broken in our world. That he can put things back to how they were in Genesis chapter 2. Now in these uh, opening verses, Jesus only gives a few clues about how exactly he can do that. He says in verse 29, it's because he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is willing to serve us rather than demand that we serve him. He can do it, verse 30, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Unlike the religious leaders and the law given by Moses, Jesus doesn't make rules and commands the central feature of a relationship with God. He's offering something completely different, something that guarantees that our restlessness can turn into rest. That's a little bit cryptic. Jesus is sort of hinting, I can offer you rest because of who I am, because of what I came to do. But Matthew doesn't leave us in the dark. In fact, understanding how Jesus gives us rest is such a big deal 
that Matthew's going to illustrate it. And no surprise, he chooses two encounters that take place on the Sabbath day to show us how Jesus can give us rest. So look at that, the first next point, Lord of the Sabbath, rest and Jesus' identity. Can I ask someone to bring me my water? It's just there. Sorry, I'm going to have a drink. So rest and Jesus' identity. So at the, look again at chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, they've caught the disciples red-handed. They've broken rule number four, subcategory B. And the Pharisees, they gather around, brandishing their rule book, demanding to know why Jesus has allowed them to behave like this. Now, Jesus has several options for how he could address this accusation. He could respond, they are not farmers. Harvesting is not their regular job on the other six days. Or he could say they are hungry. Their work is a matter of of necessity he could even respond come on guys they haven't broken the law they've just broken your man-made rules but jesus doesn't take any of those approaches in fact he, he decides to make a much bigger more profound claim about the sabbath a claim that centers on his identity he refers to two incidents in the old testament so look at the first one in verse three <clears throat> he said to them, He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. That happened in 1 Samuel 21. So King David was, or he wasn't the king then, he was uh, fleeing from Saul. And on his way, he called at the tabernacle, uh, where he persuaded the priest to give him ceremonial bread. And Jesus is comparing David and his hungry soldiers with himself and his hungry disciples. But it wasn't hunger that made David's law-breaking legitimate. It was David's identity. David was the anointed king. That's not to say that God's king was outside the law. But the law couldn't be applied simplistically to every person in every situation. Because of David's identity, the laws about ceremonial bread could be broken without consequence. Think about it like this. In important buildings like the Astana or Buckingham Palace, there will be various rooms which say no entry or strictly no admittance. And if you are a member of the public walking around those buildings, you are expected to stay out. But if you are President Tharman or King Charles, well, then it goes without saying that those rules don't apply to you. You would feel very foolish if you were a security guard and you tried to stop the president going into his bedroom. Well, the same is true for Jesus. By failing to recognize that he was God's 
chosen king, the Pharisees had foolishly accused him of breaking the Sabbath, rather than carefully considering how that law should be, be applied to Jesus, the divine human king. Jesus elaborates with the next Old Testament reference. Look at verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Again, Jesus' basic premise is that the law cannot be applied simplistically to every person in every situation. But this time he shows them that is true even when it comes to the Sabbath. The work of the priests is more important than Sabbath observance. Even on Saturday, they continue to make offerings and sacrifices. Now let's try and follow Jesus' argument carefully to see how this Old Testament reference applies to him. He's already implied that he is above the Sabbath because of his identity. Like David, he's the chosen king. But this time he's much more explicit. Look at verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's another amazing claim about his identity. Think of what the temple represented. The place where your relationship with God could be put right through sacrifices. The place where God dwelt in the midst of his people so they could enjoy a relationship with him. A new Eden, like we've been saying. Well, Jesus was saying the temple was the picture. I am the reality. As Matthew told us in chapter 2, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And through his death on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice, our relationship with God can be fully and finally restored. That's why Jesus is greater than the temple, verse 6. And that's why he quotes Hosea. In verse 7, look what he says. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Unlike the Pharisees, God is not obsessed with rule-keeping for the sake of rule-keeping. God's commands were designed to help people see their need for mercy and forgiveness. He established the sacrificial system as a signpost to a far greater reality, the Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' death is the ultimate act of mercy, and it is the secret to everything else, the rest that he offers. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light, because he does everything necessary for our relationship with God to be restored. Now, what's all this got to do with the Sabbath? Well, verse 8 is the climax of this encounter, a final dramatic claim about Jesus' identity. Just as Jesus is the, sorry, just as the temple is the picture and Jesus is the reality, so too the Sabbath is a picture and Jesus in it is the reality. In his own words, verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that doesn't simply mean that Jesus can decide what work is acceptable 
on the Sabbath. It's not, he's not saying, I set the rules, not you. No, it's a much bigger claim, similar to the one we've just seen in 11 verse 28. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath, the one to whom the Sabbath pointed. It is only through faith in him that we can have rest. It's only by coming to him that our relationship with God can be uh, restored. If the Pharisees had read their Bibles properly, they would have understood that the Sabbath was never meant to be an end in itself. Stopping work was never meant to be the way to have a right relationship with God. Along with the rest of the Old Testament, the Sabbath pointed forward to what God would one day accomplish in Christ. So can we see how foolish it is for the Pharisees to choose the picture over the reality? Imagine Pastor Nick uh, give this toy car uh, to his son, Adriel. It's a Volkswagen Beetle, I think. I guess Adriel will be pretty pleased. He could spend sort of some happy hours pretending to drive it around his bedroom floor, make car sounds, brum, 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 make it feel more real. But imagine we fast forward about uh, 15, 16 years, and Adriel has uh, turned 18. And Nick says to him, bring your toy car uh, outside with you. I've got something I want to show you. And he takes him outside, and there is a brand new Volkswagen Golf in the car park. Wow, amazing. <laughs> and Nick, he dangles the keys in front of Adriel, Adriel and he says, he says, happy birthday. Wouldn't he be so excited? But then just imagine, he says, you know what, Dad? I'd rather stick with my toy car. You can keep the keys. Thanks, but no thanks. Wouldn't that be very f- insane? Foolish? Even a little bit morally twisted? But that's exactly what the Pharisees are in danger of doing with Jesus and the Sabbath. And it only gets worse in the scene that follows. If verses 1 to 9 teach us about rest and Jesus' identity, well then verses 10 to 14, they start to show us about rest and Jesus' mission. We'll look at these verses more briefly before we apply what we've seen. So look at verses 10 to 14, um, where the next point in the hand, not a day for doing good, rest and Jesus' mission. Again, the backdrop is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Verse 9, he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? Despite the fact that they were scrupulously observant of, of the Sabbath day, they weren't at all interested in what it represented. A day for restoration, a day for doing good. Of course, they remembered that when it suited them. When their own sheep fell into a pit, they were quick to take it out. But they weren't interested in doing good for the weary, restless 
people of God. But Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who came to give us rest, he is interested in what the Sabbath represents. He cares about the restoration of our broken lives, our broken world. Verse 12, how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he heals the man. It's a wonderful picture of restoration and wholeness. As yet another sign that Jesus came to fulfill, accomplish all that the Sabbath pointed towards. Rest is about a restored relationship with God. But when that happens, it will mean the restoration of everything that has gone wrong in our world since Genesis 3, including sickness, including disease, including death. Suffering, pain, brokenness, they are all hallmarks of restlessness. But Jesus' mission is to do good, to restore our broken lives and our broken world through his death on the cross. That's why if you glance ahead at verse 15, we're told that many followed him and he healed them all. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the one who will restore everything and everyone. Or in the words of verse 20, glance ahead again, he will bring justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will put their hope. If all Jesus came to do was to restore our relationship with God, that would be pretty wonderful, wouldn't it? But Jesus promises the full package, a restored relationship with God and a completely restored world. And so that means all the problems in North Korea, South Korea, Ukraine, Russia, the Middle East, they will be fixed by him. It would be an outlandish, stupid claim for me or any other human being to say that we could fix those problems. But it will be part of what Jesus accomplishes when he restores our world. He will lead justice to victory. He's come to bring about what the new creation that Isaiah predicted, the Garden of Eden, version 2. That's what Jesus wants to show us. That's what Matthew wants to show us from these verses about rest and Jesus' mission. But very ironically, it is Jesus' desire to do good, to give life, to restore the world, that makes the Pharisees want to kill him. Look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. But in a wonderful twist, we know that it is exactly through Jesus' death that God will bring about the perfect rest that he has promised. So pulling it all together, Jesus promises rest. Rest for your souls. A restored relationship with God. Not based on law-keeping, but on faith in him. And he's promising to restore the whole created order, everything that's gone wrong because of the fall. That's his mission. And he's able to accomplish it 
because of his identity. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, the one to whom that special day has always pointed. And so the most important implication of what we've seen this evening is actually very simple. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. There may be one or two of you here this weekend who wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet. You're here because you want to know more. Well, that is the offer on the table. Come to Jesus and he will give you rest. Come to him, trusting his death, and he will bring you into the relationship with God that you were created for. And one day he will restore everything about your life, everything about this world that has been broken and damaged by sin. If you're not a Christian and you know that you are restless, come to Jesus today. He longs to give you rest. But even if you are already a Christian for one year, 10 years, 50 years, the main application is still the same. Come to Jesus. Keep coming to him every day. I know some of you were discussing what does it mean to keep the fourth commandment as Christians? This is the answer. We cling to Jesus by faith. We no longer try to relate to God on the basis of rules and regulations, not even the Ten Commandments, as excellent as they were. We relate to God on the basis of faith in his Son. We keep the Sabbath by having faith in Jesus. That's the major implication of what we have seen But I hope Matthew's gospel will also help us to appreciate just how central Jesus is in God's plans, just how incredible his rescue mission really is. There is no part of the Old Testament that is not pointing to him and fulfilled in him. Even something as important as the Sabbath. Remember we saw how central it was to the life of the Jewish nation? Just a picture of something far, far greater. Never an end in itself. Christ gives the entire Old Testament, including every Old Testament law, its full meaning and significance. He is the perfect goal to which every law pointed. It's impossible, impossible to overstate just how central Jesus Christ is to everything God is doing and will do for our world. And seeing how Christ fulfills the Sabbath, it should help us to see just how incredible his rescue mission is. Often we speak about Jesus' rescue in very narrow, uh, individualistic terms. We think it's just about me and my forgiveness. How wonderfully that is true. Christ does forgive me as an individual. But that is just the beginning. He doesn't just forgive. He restores. He transforms. And he doesn't just restore me. doesn't just restore you. He restores the whole world. 
he is bringing us back to Eden. We should praise him because of how incredible his rescue mission really is. Those are the main applications I'd love us to take away, think about, uh, from Matthew's Gospel. But there are a few secondary applications. I know there have been questions about these that I'd love us to think about as we close. So first of all, is Sunday the Christian Sabbath? Are Christians required to stop working and to devote the day to worship? As I told you this morning, uh, that is certainly what many of my extended family think they should do. But actually, since my youth, I've become persuaded uh, that the fourth commandment does not apply to Christians. Uh, Other parts of the New Testament make that even more explicit than what we've seen in Matthew's Gospel. So you might want to flick over to Colossians, or you can just listen to me. Uh, But uh, in Colossians, Paul is very critical of Jewish teachers who try to observe, uh, to impose Sabbath observance on the Colossian church. Listen to what he writes. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Then, really importantly, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. If someone was to insist that Sabbath keeping is a requirement, or even that it's a matter of salvation, or that it's somehow really, really central to the Christian life, Paul's response would be quite sharp. Let no one pass judgment on you. The Sabbath is just a shadow. Paul tells us the the right way to think about Sunday in Romans 14. Again, you might want to turn it up. Romans 14, verse 5. Just a little bit more flicking or scrolling. It's Romans 14, verse 5. One person, one Christian person, esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. In short, we are free to treat Sunday as we wish in line with our own conscience and convictions. If you want to treat Sunday as a special day, when you do no work and focus exclusively on church and your relationship with God, you are free to do so. But Paul says you shouldn't try and impose that on others. Similarly, if you are convinced that the Sabbath law no longer applies to Christians, well, then you're free to do some work on Sunday. But very importantly, the Bible commands us to meet together as Christian believers. So we are not free to skip church. But again, we don't try and impose our views on others who think Sunday is special. Paul's point is that our attitude to Sunday is a matter of conscience. What really matters is our desire to please the Lord. And then final application, let me try and say a few brief words about work and 
physical rest as Christians. Now, there might be uh, more questions about this, and we can try and tackle them uh, later. But I want to say there's actually, I don't think, any simple answer in the New Testament. There is, I, hate, I usually hate saying there's a balance, because that's just usually a way of saying, fudging it. But uh, I think there really is a balance in the New Testament between the wisdom of taking regular physical rest and then the necessity of working hard for the Lord. So even though I don't think it's a requirement for us to take one day off in seven, that would be a really good starting point as you think about your own pattern of rest. That's how my week works. I work uh, six days. I take Saturday off. Uh, Physical rest is important because we're still finite creatures. We're not not like God. We're creatures. We, 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 We need to sleep. Now, many will find that one day off in seven is a good pattern. Others might need two days off in seven. Still others might need only one day off in 14. I don't want to make new rules. It's a matter of wisdom. And like I said at the start, different Christians will rest in different ways. And we mustn't try and impose our version of rest on other people. I do this with my wife all the time. Go and sleep. I don't want to sleep. I just want to sit alone and unwind. Mustn't try to impose on other people what it means to rest. Some will sleep more. Others will read. Others will catch up with friends. Others will play games. No right or wrong way to rest. I think the main point of resting is to recharge physically. But again, there's some wisdom in using some of our rest time to recharge spiritually as well. So there is, uh, knowing that we are creatures and knowing that we need to sort of run the race with endurance, uh, we, we recognize as Christians the need for physical rest. And we try to think of wise patterns that will work for us, work for our family in terms of what that looks like practically. But in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, we should also expect to work hard serving him. I mentioned earlier some of Paul's descriptions of his ministry make for very uncomfortable reading if we think that we have some sort of right to block off 24 hours every week for God. You cannot ask me to do any ministry. You cannot ask me to do anything. It's my time, me time. Paul's description of his life makes for very uncomfortable reading if we think, oh, the goal of my life is retirement. I can finally stop and do what I want, hopefully for 20, maybe 30 years. Well, no. Paul says that uh, he's, he is the pattern for all believers. We work hard. We beat our bodies in order to serve the Lord. So evangelism, discipleship, doing good, walking in newness of life, They are all hard work, high-intensity activities. They will leave us feeling tired, worn out, stressed sometimes. But Paul knows that it is worth it because Christ has been raised from the dead and we will be raised with him. And so Paul does not idolize physical rest now. He does not idolize his dream retirement 
in the future. He's looking forward to future rest, which will last forever. And we'll think about that more tomorrow. Again, I hope that raises some questions for us all. But hopefully, again, we see the point that there's no simple equation in the uh, New Testament to get us the perfect work-life rest balance. As creatures who have come to our Savior for rest, we know that physical rest is also important. We know that God doesn't need us to burn ourselves out trying to earn our salvation or trying to build his kingdom. God doesn't need us to burn ourselves out. But at the same time, we are convinced that working hard for Christ is worth it even if that sometimes leaves us feeling tired, stressed, and so on. So why don't we close by praying for wisdom to get that balance right, and also by giving thanks to Jesus for being the fulfillment of everything the Sabbath pointed to. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to Jesus, and he will give us rest. That his yoke is easy and his burden is light and that he promises rest for our souls. Not in the demands of rule keeping and law observance, but through faith in him, the one who is everything that the Sabbath pointed to, the one who, uh, whose mission is to fulfill all the Sabbath promised. We pray that we would have our vision of Jesus Christ enlarged through these things and that we would also be given wisdom by you to understand the place of physical rest in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Help us to be wise about that. Help us be loving to one another. Help us to learn from one another, to develop patterns that will work for each of us, that will strengthen us for endurance in the race, to keep us humble, reminding ourselves that we are creatures. But also keep in mind that we are a working heart for a very great Savior, with the confidence that our labor in the Lord is never in vain because Christ has been raised from the dead and we will be raised with him and we will rest with him forever and ever. Amen.